0: Parenthood is a time of so much change for you and your baby. A little reliable information can go a long way towards making this new life a good life. I'm Jessica Rolfe, and this is My New Life, a Love Every podcast. While the science aligns on what's healthy for a baby's brain development, When it comes to how to care for our babies, there's a seemingly endless supply of competing perspectives. Parents are swimming in advice on sleep, feeding, and parenting philosophies. In this season of the podcast, we aim to provide a variety of curated perspectives so you can make informed choices for your family. We've all been there. The big emotions that roll in from left field can be the wrong utensil, the wrong lovey, or just the wrong side of the bed. Toddlers are excellent at showing emotions, but not yet skilled at expressing them. They need our help naming and understanding their feelings. What I love most about our guest today is how clearly he communicates what the child is feeling in these dysregulated situations. Chaz Lewis, also known as Mr. Chaz, is the king of co-regulation. He's an educational specialist who oversees nine preschools. I invite you to take a deep breath and tune in for some seriously grounding wisdom. We tend to use some big words when it comes to managing our little people. Like what, what is this concept of co-regulation?
1: Yeah, co-regulation. I'm going to just I'll try to put things as simply as possible so it's as accessible to everyone and co-regulation is really just the process of being present with another person and helping them regulate and get to a more balanced state. I think about regulation as balance, right? When you're regulated, you're balanced. You feel balanced. Regulation, it, you, you feel good about what you're, what you're doing for your, your situation. And the thing about it is we're not always supposed to be regulated. Dysregulation is a part of the game. It's a part of the process, right? In the adult situation of dysregulation, maybe it is, let's do, you are with your mother-in-law. That's a classic one that we'll do. And they are, they're saying something to you or they're saying something about you or about your children. And it is, getting you a little frustrated. You are becoming dysregulated. Um, And that is just a signal from your body saying, Hey, something's not right here. Don't feel right about this. And your body's not necessarily going to tell you, you know, the most pro social way to get back to regulation, but it, it will likely give you some kind of way to move closer to regulation. And it might not be in a way that is healthy for other people um, or even healthy for you. Your body might tell you to get up and hit or yell or, or scream at. And that will make you feel better. It will make you feel a little bit more balanced in the moment. And that's why we're inclined to do it and that's why you want to do it. And that's why young children, you know, bite and hit. And that's why we get, you know, amped up and we, you know, yell and hit, slam things on the ground or whatever, but there are better ways to get back to regulation. And that's what we have to practice and teach our children. Um, and for young children, bringing it back to co-regulation, full circle for young children, young children learn how to regulate through co-regulation. You know, they really need a lot of co-regulation. They need an adult who's able to self-regulate to go in and be present with the child and help them regulate and get back to regulation in healthy
0: ways. And I, you use this example of this child that's hitting. Can you give give us a little bit more insight into what this co-regulation moment looks like? So I understand and I loved how you painted the picture of this child feeling so frustrated and wanting to get this other toy from this, you know, this other child and going to hit them. And that actually for a moment makes them feel better. What should a parent or a teacher in this moment do um, and what do you do when you see this sort of brewing? And how do you interview? And how what does co-regulation really look like? Give me the words and the example of what this what this looks like in this situation.
1: Yeah. Um, so the first thing you want to do, as um, a lot of people are aware of, is you want to check on the child who is hurt first. You just want to you want to make sure that the child is okay. The first thing you really want to, after you check on the child, you want to get really curious uh, about why it happened. Um, you don't want to go immediately to just berating the child and how would you do this? I told you a thousand times, a hundred times, you know, hands are not for hitting. You know, you don't want to just come at the child because then when you do that, it's going to create even more of a fight or flight response. Um, if the child wasn't already in fight or flight and that's going to shut down the part of the brain that they need to actually access the logic and reasoning that they need to problem solve, to work through, to talk about what to do differently, to communicate to you why they may have actually hit or did the thing. Um, and so a lot of times we'll come in hot and be like, I told you a hundred, hundred times. And we never even figure out why it happened. If let's say the child is hitting because they, someone uh, the other child took their toy, what we want to do is to teach the child to get their toy back without hitting, right? With words or gestures. And if they're too young to, they don't have any words, not even a stop, um, then it's going to be a lot of redirection that's happening um, and a lot of modeling that's happening. Um, Another thing that I will do in these moments where the hitting's happening is I will I will point out and notice the effect it had on the other child. Right. Um, And notice, like, look at like the cues, like they're upset, like they're crying. You know, their tears are running down their face. Like, you know, they're on the ground. They're hurt. Just so that the other child is learning, the child who hit is like starting to recognize the, really the consequences of their actions. Um, Because that's still something that they're learning, too, and learning, you know, how to read other people's facial expressions and what they mean and and how to help, like what those cues mean.
0: Lots of brain growth happens in the first three years of life. But how much of who we become is predetermined by our genetics and how much is based on our early experiences? According to neuroscientists, it boils down to about 50-50: 50% genetics and 50% environment. But what exactly is this environment? What makes for an environment that is enriching for little brains? At Lovevery, we have brought together experts from all fields of early childhood development to answer this question: neuroscientists, Montessori experts, occupational therapists, and speech therapists. For every stage from birth to age four, we have just the right activities, tools, and information so you can feel confident you are giving your child the very best start. I remember seeing on your account a story about how all these children were really interested in the cicadas that were that were out, and this little girl really wanted to tell a story about butterflies. And she was speaking louder and louder and wanted people to listen to her important story about butterflies. And finally she just yelled at these kids and stormed away. Can you talk to me about how you were able to connect with her?
1: Yeah. So this was a three-year-old at two, three, four. They're very, they're really learning. Words are so new to them. They will, when they do get frustrated and overwhelmed, and dysregulated, and things aren't going their way. One way that they try to get things to go their way is through a physical means, it's through hitting or, or shoving, or grabbing, because it works and it's within their skill level. Like that's something that they learn to do when they're very young. Now, using words when you know, things aren't going their way, when they're really emotional, like, that's a really tough thing to do. And I saw how she was getting, like, amped up and, and getting, like, more and more flustered and frustrated as she was trying to talk to her friends who were just enamored with the cicadas. Um, and, you know, years ago, it, it might have been something where I might have intervened and said, hey... Like she's trying to tell you guys something. Um, you know, she's trying to she's trying to she's trying to talk to you guys, so why don't you guys listen? But I didn't because if I did, I would have taken away the opportunity for the child to do what she did, which was express how she was feeling. And instead of hitting or trying lashing out, she went and removed herself from the situation and she went and she stomped away, which again. Is her trying to get back to regulation. Stomping her feet is a way to get closer to that balance. Um, you know, like when you're upset, if you stomp your feet, you can kind of feel your, you know, the the feelings. You're getting out the feelings instead of holding them in. So that's her self-regulating. And I would have taken that opportunity away if I would have kind of dictated how that situation would happen instead of allowing the natural you know, consequence and course of things take its course. So she went and she stopped off and I'm kind of observing because while I'm allowing her to self-regulate and have her moment, I'm still, I'm I'm still watching. I was kind of looking almost kind of like a double dutch thing. Like when is, when is the right time for me to kind of jump in here um, to actually, to actually be of help. And when she stopped kind of walking around, which again, self-regulating and she sat down and she kind of went into herself she put her knees up I wish you guys could see me right now but she put her knees up and she put her head like on her knees and she was kind of like curled in the corner and that was something that I recognized okay it's now it's time for me to intervene because she's no longer practicing self-regulation um, she's she's at this point wallowing in her hurt. Um, and when we talk about trauma, not to say that this was a traumatic event, but what makes a traumatic event is, is not so much what makes the trauma isn't so much the event. Um, it is how the event is processed and people who are alone and aren't able to process it with someone, or they don't have the skills or the understanding to process it themselves like that's when the trauma comes up and that's when the hurt like really sticks. Um, and you know, that's not healthy. So at this, this point I intervene and I kind of start to notice her feeling. And I said, you seem pretty frustrated right now. And she responded to me, "Ah." And I'm like, okay, Mr. Ch- and I'm thinking to myself, I was like, okay, yeah, Mr. Chaz, like you didn't even, you didn't do the thing that you, you only have to do the thing that you tell other people to do. You remember, you got to talk about the source of the emotion too, just not validate, but, but the source of the emotion, make her feel seen, make her feel, make her feel heard. So, so I kind of restated what I was saying it's like, you seem really mad. I changed the word to mad because I recognized frustrated. It wasn't, may not have been a word in her vocabulary. So it's not something that connected with her. I said, you seem mad because no one was listening to you. And then at that moment, like her whole body language and facial expression shifted. And she lifted her head up and she looked at me and then she started to talk about how they weren't listening to her and she was getting it out and I was listening and I was, and you know, periodically I was kind of reflecting back what she was saying and reflecting back her emotions. And you can kind of start to see as I was talking, she started to stand up and she started to walk around and then she started to get back a little bit more into kind of self-regulating, you know, with my co-regulation. And she had mentioned, she was like, and no one listened to me. She said it like she said it again. And I said, well, I'll listen to you. And that was kind of like my kind of problem-solving moment for her of just, hey, yeah, they weren't listening to you, but guess what? There are other people who may listen to you. Maybe that group of people, they were interested in something else at the time. I threw in a little bit of perspective, taking a little bit of like, yeah, they were really, yeah, you really wanted them to um, listen to your story about the baby butterfly, but you know, they were really excited about the cicadas. I don't think they've ever seen cicadas before. This is something that's really new to them. And I added a little bit of that in there because again, that perspective taking is so important. Um, and just by us modeling it and noticing it and taking their perspective and taking other people's perspective, it, it, it it's, it's slowly but surely wiring their brain to do the same. Um, so not only was I able to you know, do a little bit of, you know, a lot of co-regulation, but also is able to practice a little, you know, a little bit of empathy and perspective taking. All of these things are tools that we can practice as adults. And they're not necessarily something, you don't necessarily have to use every tool and try to check off every box and every interaction, but they're tools on your tool belt that you get better at using and knowing when to use each tools. Um, I shared, even in that story, even someone who practices and preaches and talks about it, I don't always use the tools perfectly. Um, and that's okay. But I, I'm, you know, but I re- reflect and I try to improve, improve, improve and, you know, we, if we make mistakes, that's okay.
0: There's so much that's powerful in that story. And I think it's really helpful to hear it come to life in this example. And I think for me, what I also took away, which I don't know that it was a big emphasis in what you were saying, but really the fact that she was yelling at these other kids and stomping away, in some cases we might say, stop, you know, stop yelling. Don't don't yell at these other kids. You know, and I have a situation with my child Thatcher who really struggles with, with regulation. And he, um, we've moved into him screaming and yelling is actually, is really progress for him um, because he's not hitting and he's not taking out the aggression physically. And so it's all these stages. And I think it's so helpful to have you kind of illuminate that for us and help us see that the child needs, that they are seeking this kind of, <laughs> this regulation moment inside of themselves. And it can come out in, in, in ways that are, you know, not acceptable to us adults, but that we need to be patient with them and, and help them along that that path of from the physical aggression to maybe the yelling to then maybe separating themselves. You know, she she did a lot of these things and you know it's it's a congratulations moment, right? It's it's success for her um, that she didn't hit these other children or bite them or you know, do something else that was that was another way of regulating.
1: Yeah. And you know, you said something I want to highlight, like it's the stages, right? And it is again, just like for us as, 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 as teachers, as parents, as caregivers, you know, and us not being perfect and always the way that we respond and the way that we do things and we're trying to learn and get better, and we need that space to get better. children need that same thing. It's about practicing those skills. And if we just cut them off, when they're young and just say like you're the way you're doing it is is wrong and you're not allowed to express yourself in that way when they're young and they don't have the skills to do what we would like them to do as adults, then it's likely that they're not going to be able to go through those stages because we cut them off in those beginning stages when they were trying to learn. And so
0: another topic for parents is this question about an apology. You know, say, oh my gosh, you hit that child. You know, you need to say, I'm sorry. You need to apologize. Where do you come down on asking for this apology or even forcing an apology?
1: So I will say, and I will tell people that we should very much try to avoid forcing apologies because it's not a real apology. If it's forced... It's not a real apology. And when we do that, I think we do it with the best of intentions, right? We're trying to teach empathy and perspective taking. So I need to teach you that, you know, you say sorry and there's no if, ands about it. But what that happens, what the effect of that is that we taint and pollute the idea of an apology, right? And children start to think, and also there are a lot of adults who think this way too, um, likely because this this was the message they received as children, that when you make a mistake or you hurt someone, that if you apologize, your mistake is erased and you, just, just apologize and the other person can be mad and just say, just just say you're sorry. Right. And it's empty. Right. And instead of really practicing the skill of reflecting and thinking like, am I actually sorry for this? What was the effect on, you know, what was the effect of my actions on the other person? Um, and when we're like, when we come in and we're like, say you're sorry, say you're sorry, say you're sorry, especially when we're like we're really forcing it. Like the focus is no longer on how can I, you know, how can I genuinely and authentically kind of repair this relationship? How, you know, how do I feel about what happened? The focus is on, you know, you're wrong. So you need to do this thing that I'm telling you to do to make it better. And that's all you need to do. And a lot of times it ends there as opposed to talking, like helping them process what happened, how the other person felt and you can encourage an apology. That's the other thing I want to make clear too. Like I'm fully on board and fully support encouraging apologies. Right. And just, and, and, you know, like reminders of just, Hey, like, is there something that you want to say? Like you really hurt Susan when you, pushed her to get in front of the line um is there and look she's you know she's on the floor and she's crying she's hurt is there something you want to do is there something you want to say to to make it better um and then it gives them an opportunity now they have an opportunity to think huh they are on the ground she is hurt huh what can i do maybe they don't know and you can give them some suggestions if they're, you know, especially if they're really young, you haven't gone through the process very often. You can give them some suggestions. Like you can, you could help her up, you could apologize and say you're sorry, you could, you know, write a picture for her, you could give her a hug, you could, you know, ask her to play with you, you can bring her to the front of the line, you can let her go in front of you. There's so many different ways to repair that relationship that is so much more authentic and genuine. And when we do that, we're we are helping them think about how to repair relationships in that way. Um, and anyone who has been in a relationship where they've been hurt, I think it attests to the importance of knowing how to repair a relationship.
0: I don't want to intentionally shame my little my little children, but I do think I do it anyway sometimes. And I think that what would help me to be more self-aware is have you explain for all of us, what does shame specifically look like? Let's imagine I have a two or three-year-old. What kinds of examples can you give us parents that help us understand so we can see ourselves a little bit in a different light?
1: Yeah. So I think... You know, first thing I want to say when talking about shame is kind of like identifying what shame is um, and kind of talk about the difference between shame and guilt because um, we also, sometimes we will shame ourselves um, and I don't want you to shame yourself for shaming, um, but it's okay to be guilty for actions that you've taken in the past and that can be healthy, right? Guilt is focusing on the action, like, oh man, I didn't, f- forgot to pack the lunch. I, you know, I, you know, I can, I can do better tomorrow, right? Like, I've guilt is focused on the action of something that we may have did or did not do. And that's recoverable because it's like, hey, I can take different actions next time. I can improve my actions. I can change my actions. Shame is focused on who you are as a person, right? And which is not so changeable, like our actions are. So a lot of times when we shame ourselves, we just get into this cycle of just like, I'm a bad mom. And then, you know, we start to kind of take on the, what's the point of even trying? Because I'm just, I am this way, right? Um, as opposed to the gills. Like, you know, I yelled yesterday. I shamed yesterday. I got a little, you know, I got overwhelmed. I got overwhelmed and I yelled, And that was a a little out of character for me. And that's not who I am. I reacted that way because of the, you know, the emotions I was feeling and I can do better next time. You know, I can practice self-regulation. I can say some mantras in my head and I can have a better, different response. I can follow accounts. I can listen to this podcast and I can learn better ways. I am a person who is, having a hard time right now. I'm a good person who's having a hard time. Now with kids, it's, you know, same thing. One kind of mantra that I love um, that I will even kind of use for myself uh, is, you know, your children aren't giving you a hard time, they're having a hard time. Is one of my favorite, it's a very popular kind of mantra. Um, It's one of my favorite ones to say to myself and to share with other people When we say children act out, right? Children, they're acting out. Let's finish that sentence, right? They're acting out of character. With that, if, you know, using the the whole sentence, the implication is there, there that their character, they're inherently good, right? They're a good person. But in this moment, they're acting out of character. Now let's explore why they're acting out of character, and let's work on that, right? Let's, just like I said with the uh, adults, the parents and the, you know, let's work on self-regulation and do mantras and responding differently. With the child, let's, you know, work on expressing how they're feeling and self-regulation techniques for them and maybe setting up the environment so that they can be successful in it. You know, instead of just shaming, saying they're a bad kid, because they're acting out of character right now. Let's figure out what's causing them to act out of character and help them stay in character.
0: I love that. It's really, really helpful. Mr. Chaz, it has been such a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Well, I have enjoyed this conversation This has been uh, really fun for me. I I love sharing my ideas and talking about these ideas and helping and reaching people. And if anyone, anyone listening to this, I know you're going to follow me. I've got some great things planned for the future, and I'm excited to be here for you on your journey.
0: You can find more guidance from Mr. Chaz on Patreon at Mister Chaz. You can also find him on TikTok at Mr. Chaz, Mr. Chaz. That's C-H-A-Z-Z. You've been listening to My New Life. If you think this episode might be helpful to a fellow parent, please share. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's show, head over to loveevery.com. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. I'm Jessica Rolfe. Thanks for listening.